Thank you. Thank you for the invite to share God's Word. If you have your Bibles, please take it and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Gospel of John, chapter 3. Um, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He's talking about the new birth. Nicodemus is having a hard time understanding the meaning of Jesus' words. And then we come to this section of John chapter 3. And if you're able to stand at the reading in honor of God's Word, at the reading of God's Word, please stand. If you're not able to stand, that's fine too, as we read verse 9 through verse 16. John chapter 3, verse 9 through verse 16. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Speaking of the new birth. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Father, we ask for the Holy Spirit to be alive and at work in our minds and our hearts. We invite him to have his way in our lives and that we would see this passage of Scripture perhaps with new eyes. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Our first church was in Mendota, Illinois. It was a church plant, and our primary focus was evangelism, reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the ways we did that is that we would have backyard clubs We would reach uh, into children's lives and then uh, through the back door reach into their parents' lives. And every Sunday morning we'd round up a bunch of kids and bring them to church where we would share the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of those uh, groups of kids were all siblings. Kevin and his uh, four brothers and sisters uh, would be a group that we'd pick up and bring to church. And... um, they would hear the gospel, and um, one night, uh, late at night, I got a phone call, and it was Kevin's mom. Kevin's mom was weeping, and she said, I have all these children to care for. Her husband had died tragically. I have all these kids to love and care for, but who will love and care for me? I took my Bible, I opened it up to John 3.16, I'm a young pastor. I'm not sure exactly what to do in a moment like this. And I read John 3.16 to her. If I was to ask you what is the most favorite and most beloved verse in all the Bible, you would all say John 3.16. The great reformer Martin Luther said of John 3.16, it is a miniature gospel. Uh, Joseph Wallace said, if there ever was a verse in the Bible Satan would like to blot out, it would be John 3.16. 
Wallace also added that if there was ever a verse in the Bible that has lit the way for multitudes into heaven, it is this passage, John 3.16. And it's this verse that has our focus this morning as we come and hear God's word. We want to see it in fresh eyes. We want to see it in, um, in ways maybe we have... Um, you know how familiarity can kind of bleed out the, the sharpness of the scriptures? You've read it so many times. You've heard it so many times. But we want to instead look at this passage with, with fresh eyes. For believers who are here, here is a beautiful evangelistic message for you to share with your non-Christian friends and your family. And we're going to break the passage down so you know how to share this passage. If you're investigating the claims of Christianity, what you're going to find in John 3.16 is who God is, what he thinks about you, and what he has done for you. In John 3.16, we discover three transformational truths, truths that will change your life. We're going to go through them really quickly, so I want you to pay attention as we move through this passage of Scripture. First, transformational truth. God loves you. God so loved the world. Now you're saying, boy, this is a pretty simple outline. Yes, it is. Scripture should be that way. Look closely at verse 16 of this passage, how it begins. Verse 16, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. Two words dominate our attention in this first part of John 3, 16. The word love and the word world. What did Jesus mean when he used those words? You've all heard about the word for divine love, agape, which is the word that's here. Have you ever looked up in a dictionary as to what that word is translated, what it means? Here's what it means. When it uses the word love, it means to cherish or to place a high value upon. God so loved, he so cherished, it's the kind of cherish that a mother has for the newborn baby and holds that newborn baby and just cherishes the baby. Are you getting a picture here? That's the kind of cherish God has. And the second word is the word world. And when John uses the word world, he's speaking of all the people that are in the human race. He's talking about individuals. He's looking at all the people of the human race. God cherishes and places a high value on all the people in the world. The cranky neighbor God loves. The prickly personality around the coffee pot at work God loves. The relative you had a falling out with years and years ago God loves. You getting the picture here? God so loved the world. To our way of thinking, we've heard this passage so many times that we have failed to hear how scandalous these words were to the ears of Nicodemus when he heard them. Why do I say this? Context is king. Take a look at John chapter 3, verse 1. Who is Jesus talking to? A Pharisee, a religious person a very important religious person. He is called a ruler of the Jews. He is Jewish. He is a religious Jew. 
His mindset and his perspective on the world is Jewish in every way. Well, what's the big diff? Well, here's the big diff. That when it came to the center of the universe, there was only one center in his mind. And that center was Jewish. It was Israel. For example, I won't have you turn to these passages, but you might want to make a note of them. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10, God says about Israel, you are the apple of my eye. So God looks upon Israel and he says, I love you. On the other hand, when it came to the Gentiles, the Jewish people would hear the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 34, verse 2, my wrath is against the Gentile nations. So Nicodemus grew up in a world where the favored people of the world were Jewish people. And the rest of the world, well, they could go to hell in a handbasket. They were under the wrath of God. Then Jesus comes along to Nicodemus, this religious ruler, and he says, God so loved the world. Wait, wait, God so loved the Jews. But Jesus is saying, God loves the Gentiles as much as he loves the Jewish people. I'm going to guess in this room, in this room, 99.9% of the people in this room are Gentiles. God loves the Gentile world as he loves his Jewish people, Israel. Let me personalize this. God cherishes and values you. Just let that sit on your mind. God cherishes and values you and me. No matter our background, our ethnicity, our baggage, our past, our sins, God loves you. Augustine once said, God loves you as though you're the only person in the world. And he loves all the people in the world in the same way that he loves you. This changes our perspective on who God is. The God revealed in the Bible. God so loved the world. That's the first big point that Jesus makes in John 3.16. God so loved you. But he has a second point he's going to make here. God so loved the world, you can say it without even reading the Bible, can't you? That he gave his only begotten son, or his only son. Key word here is the word gave. Make a note of that, underline it in your Bible. It carries the idea of sacrificing something of great value. Context is king here. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus has something really specific in mind as to how God gave his son. So go back up the scriptures, look at verse 13, 14. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, 
This is very, um, uh, this is very Jacob-like. This is a Bethel experience. He's, he's uh, on the lamb. He's running from his brother. His brother's threatened to kill him. He's laid his head on a rock. He's fallen asleep. How he could do that? I have to have a soft pillow. But he lays his head on a rock. He falls asleep. He has the dream. And, and, and on the dream, he sees a huge ladder coming down from heaven. And the angels are ascending, going up from earth, and descending. And there at the top is one like the Son of Man, the Son of God. Uh, Jesus, I think, is referencing that Old Testament moment that the one that is at the top of the ladder, the one that the angels are descending and ascending on, is Jesus himself. But we can talk about that more later. Then verse 14, he goes to another Old Testament passage. Well, you've got to know the Old Testament. If I can ever just kind of herald this uh, in the loudest way possible... I don't, know, I don't know if you could understand the New Testament unless you understood the Old Testament because so much of the New Testament is derived from the Old Testament. And to make the New Testament rich and beautiful, you need to know the Old Testament. So he takes us back to Numbers 22, and he says in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, this looks totally out of place. Why this story? Why this moment? Remember the moment. Israel has been complaining in the wilderness. Grouse, grouse, grumpy, grumpy, complaining about this, that, and the other thing. And and then God sends a judgment upon them. And those serpents come out of who knows where in the wilderness and begins to bite them, and they're dropping dead all over the place. They cry out, what should we do? Moses cries out, what should I do? Take a piece of brass, fashion it and form it into a serpent, put it on a standard and lift it up. So whenever people get stung, that before they die, if they look at the serpent lifted up, they won't die, they'll live. Jesus cites that. And then he says, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Clearly, what Jesus has in view is his upcoming crucifixion. When Jesus would be lifted up on a standard, the cross, where those who have been bitten by the power of sin look to him and they will be cured and not destroyed. Jesus is looking at the cross, a criminal's death, a capital punishment, for having committed a capital crime in the Roman Empire, he is going to die on the cross. Now, I know you're wondering if this was scandalous to Nicodemus as he heard this statement, that God gave his only begotten son. And I can tell you with absolute certainty that when Nicodemus heard that Jesus would die on the cross, it was a It was scandalous. It was offensive. Because Nicodemus, like all of Israel, anticipated Messiah coming. Should have been no surprise when Jesus showed up. They had it in the Old Testament. Everything about the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. They knew Jesus was coming. What they didn't know is that Jesus would be a sacrifice for sin. They saw Jesus, Messiah, coming as a conquering hero. 
not as a crucified criminal. So when Nicodemus heard, God so loved the world, that was scandalous. How could he love Gentiles? That he gave his only begotten son. How can Messiah die? Reign as king, yes, but never die. So that raises this question. Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Why did Jesus have to die? There's a passage in the New Testament, Romans 3.23, that says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What that verse is saying is that we live in a moral universe. Whether our world and our secular culture acknowledges it or not, we live in a moral universe. God is holy and without sin, and he is the benchmark by which we are measured. And what Romans 3.23 says is when we are measured against God himself, not one another, but God himself, we fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 adds, the wages of sin is death. So when we don't measure up to God's glory, death is the result. And what he's talking about here is physical death as well as spiritual death. This is the only way to explain the physical sufferings and the death in our world. This is the only explanation why there is so much brokenness and destruction in our world. We are born sinners, we are practicing sinners, and we are under the judgment of God. The bad news is we have no power to rescue ourselves. We have no power to rescue ourselves. The good news, the good news is that God has made a way of rescuing Adam's lost race. Do you remember that passage in Mark chapter 10, verse 45? Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The imagery is quite graphic and quite violent. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life as a ransom for sinners. It means we are hostages. All of us born to Adam's race are hostages to sin and judgment. In order to escape being hostages, a ransom must be paid. Just like, you know, when there's a hostage uh, takeover and, and, and the, 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 those who do the taking over uh, ask for a ransom to be paid, there has to be a ransom paid. That ransom price is found in John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Jesus' death on the cross was our substitute. It was the ransom payment by which we are set free from the power of sin and death. How did God love us? He gave us his son to die on the cross. God so loved the world. That's the first truth. That's transformational. God loved you. How did he love us? He gave his only begotten son, death on the cross, release us from 
being hostages to sin. And now we come to the third truth. Whoever believes it, you see this? This is pretty simple, isn't it? I'm just being pretty simple. Sometimes it pays to be very, very simple as you open the scriptures. But as you go on in John 3, 16, it says, this is the third, third truth, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If there ever a passage to, to bless you and scare the socks off of you, this is the, this is the part of John 3, 16. It should, it should bless you, but it should scare the socks off of you. When sinners trust Jesus Christ, two things happen. Did you see it here? Did you see the two things that happened in John 3.16? The first is that they do not what? They do not perish. What does that mean? We'll find out. The second thing is they have what? Eternal life. So you're following me. This is great. I'm feeling good right now. So break it down. The word perish in John 3.16 means destroy. It's present tense. You love this grammar stuff. It's present tense, which means that those who are hostages to sin and judgment are being destroyed. I can, I can, I can attest my life before Jesus Christ. I was a drunk. I was an alcoholic. I was a druggie. I can just tell you I was destroying my life until someone was bold enough to share John 3.16 with me, and it changed my life. Those without Christ are being destroyed. The penultimate destruction is when they leave this earth. Someone said that Jesus was was the, the master theologian of hell. No one knew and no one talked more about hell in the human race than Jesus Christ. Like in Matthew chapter 8, he describes it as the outer darkness, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the way he describes it, it's as though he's saying... Don't go there. I'm going to provide a way to go here, but don't you go there. That's a terrible place to go. And you'll spend your eternity there. But I'm going to make a way of escape. So it was a terrible place. Those without Christ are perishing. Those with Christ are not perishing. But notice what he says next. But they have eternal life. Again, you're just going to love the grammar here. Is there any people that love grammar when they were going to school? Okay, we got, we got a few. Very good. I hated grammar. Uh, Mr. Tonkin's class, I think I got D's in the class. This is high school. It was, I was terrible. But then I learned Greek, and I learned to love grammar, which is kind of a weird way to go. But anyway, here it is. The word have, have eternal life. You're going to love this. Got to hold on to this one. It's present tense, active voice. Well, what does that mean? Here it is. When you come to Christ, when you surrender to Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. Well, what's that? Okay, what, is, what do people in eternity have? What do people who have gained their eternal reward, what do they have every moment of their eternal existence? You're going to love this. They have God's presence. God's presence is always their view in their life. Jesus said in John 14, if you obey my commandments, I and my Father will come to you and we'll make our abode in you. We have eternity come to our own hearts in the very person of Jesus Christ. 
Actually, we go God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They come to dwell in us, so we live in the face of eternity right now. What else do people in eternity have that we are so desperate to have? They have perfect peace. They are in the presence of God without sin, without rancor, without the evil one, and they experience God's peace. Well, that might be good for those folks in heaven, but that's not where it's at for me. Hold on, hold on. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Do you have this memorized? Memorize this. Are you given to anxiety? Do you tend to worry too much? Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is my prescription to you. I'll be a doctor and I'll, I'll prescribe this to you. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. You're dying to know what it says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing. That's a command. But in everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the what? The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. That is, words can't describe it. The peace that surpasses all comprehension shall guard your minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. God's presence, God's peace. I couldn't get a third P on this one. But God's love. God's love and God's joy. Do you remember in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22? I'm just going all over the Bible, aren't you? Are you keeping up? Galatians 5, 22. Remember that the Holy Spirit is given to those who have called upon Jesus Christ. And remember, the Holy Spirit gives gifts or fruit. Remember what some of those fruit are? Love, joy, peace, patience. So that when Jesus says, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that those who believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The everlasting life begins the moment you call on Jesus Christ and you live in the presence of eternity on earth. This is a huge, this is huge for Nicodemus, and it really is huge for us. I keep thinking to myself, and you hear older saints talk about this, well, one day I'll, I'll go to eternity. Well, that's true. But it misses the point that eternity began when you called on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You live in God's peace, you live in God's presence, and you live with God's love. Now, here and now. All right, so here's the good news. I'm not finished with the sermon yet. I've still got some more, so hold on. Here's the good news. And all this we've been, we've been describing, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Here's the good news. You do not have to earn God's love. You don't have to work for eternal life. It is a gift that God gives to you and I. If you have your Bibles, you need to see this for sure with your own eyes. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. This is a very important verse to believers. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8 and 9. For by grace 
you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is what? Say it out loud. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man boast. When God sent his son to die on the cross for you, he was giving you a gift. A gift for you to receive. A gift for you to own. An inheritance for you to experience. Morality cannot save us from divine judgment. Religion cannot save us from Adam's sin. Good deeds cannot give us a good standing before a holy God. Only God's grace, which is a gift. We are saved by God's grace when we place our trust in Jesus Christ. Three simple truths in John 3.16. God so loved the world, truth number one, that he gave his only begotten son, truth number two, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, truth number three. So what do we do with these three transformational truths? First, if you are born again believer, then rejoice in God's love. It should put a sunny countenance on our disposition each day. I am loved by God who died for me. And, and he will never turn his back on the people he loves. Remember as Jesus is getting ready to go into heaven and he's leaving the disciples, he gives them the great commission to make disciples. Remember that? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Do you remember the last statement that he makes as he gets to the end? I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He will never turn his back on us. Second, as believers, God calls us to share the gospel with our friends and family and neighbors. And John 3.16 provides a wonderful outline, message for how and what we say. We tell our, our non-Christian friends, God loves you, <laughs> Jesus died for you, and if you believe, you have everlasting life. Thirdly, if you are without Jesus Christ today, then listen to God's heart for you in John 3.16. He really, really loves you. In loving you, Jesus died for you, in dying for you, he cleansed you from sin and guilt. The Bible says that, that after three days in the tomb, Jesus rose from the grave. When Jesus rose from the grave, he defeated sin and death. In Jesus, you can live in his victory. In Jesus, you have a new beginning. In Jesus... You have a fresh start. Call upon Jesus Christ. Ask him to forgive your sins. Begin your new life in Christ today. Do you remember the gal I talked about who called me late at night? A long time ago. Her name was Laura. Laura is on the telephone 
she's sobbing. Her husband had died of a violent death, and she was left penniless, and now she had five children to care for. And between sobs, she's saying, um, I must love all of these children, all of my children, but who will love me? So I turned to John 3.16, the passage we've just been looking at, and I read the passage. I gave her an explanation of what that passage meant. And I shouldn't have been surprised. I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was shocked when she said, I want this Jesus in my heart. That night, she called upon Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. And her and her family were never the same. All because of the power of God's love. And this is the power of John 3.16. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, there is for us who are followers of Jesus Christ great joy in hearing your wonderful testimony of your love for us and what you've done to show that love. Uh, For those who are here that do not know Jesus Christ, here's the invitation to call upon Jesus Christ and be changed and transformed forevermore. Lord, I think about that night uh, when Laura was on the phone sobbing, not knowing what to say. As a very young pastor, I didn't know what to say except to read the scriptures. And I was convinced from that moment that there's great power in the Word of God to change people's lives. And I thank you for changing her life and her family's life. Lord, may it be said after this service that some have called upon the Lord. Others have been built up in the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.